Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org/nach or on my website, ericlevy.com, under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I am pleased to bring to you Chapter 7 of the Book of Kohelet. As we saw last chapter, Kohelet came to a conclusion of sorts, which was to recognize the limit of human reason to work out everything that happens in the world, especially how things will work out after death. In this chapter, Kohelet embarks on a series of toves, meaning evaluations of what is good, tov, to do in one's life, or what is better than something else. In the first section, Kohelet speaks in second person, which is a switch of style, and it's the style of the chacham, the sage, who educates and exhorts his students. Tov shem misheven tov, a name, meaning a good reputation, is better than good oil, and the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. The first half of the verse is, is pretty straightforward, reputation versus riches. Since the former, the reputation, outlasts death, and the latter does not, so it's better to have that good reputation. In Shira Shirim, the beloved compares her lover's good reputation to flowing oil. She says, Shemen Turak Shemecha. In the way that fine scent carries, so too does a good reputation. Of course, here, oil, here and there, oil is a synecdoche for a person's wealth. It's not just the oil, but it's everything that a person uh, has. The second half of the verse, however, seems a bit surprising. Uh, but if it's connected with the first half, so then the sense means that if a person has a good name at the time of his death, a good reputation at the time of his death, that is better than a newborn who may or may not make something out of himself uh, during the course of his life, his or her life. Of course, it should not be surprising that Kohelet is focusing on the idea of death since he is stymied by it. It causes him, struggle, it causes him to struggle with it philosophically and theologically. Um, but here, what he does is he leverages death, and he will in the next few verses as well, he leverages death and the difficulty of it um, as an aid in understanding how to live life. Tov lalechet al beit evel, milechet al beit mishteh, ba'asher husov kol ha'adam, v'acha yitain et libo. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a party house, in that it, that is death, is the terminus of every man, and therefore the living will take heed um, by going to the Beit Evel, by going to the morning house. It is not clear if, uh, when he refers to a parting house being one of uh, uh, a bad place to go, whether he's talking about a frivolous type of party, like a frat party or the like, or whether he's talking about an appropriate celebration, like a wedding. However, it doesn't really matter, since Tov does can mean it is better, and it doesn't necessarily mean that the other thing is bad, it just means that this is the best way to go about things. Kohelet's point is clear, and, and, and I think it's very clear to anybody who goes to a shiva call. Nobody likes to pay a shiva call, but they get you thinking about life as you're sitting there, and they, you get to think about your limited time under the sun. Tov kas mi sechok ki panim yitav lev. Agitation is better than revelry because a troubled face will aid the lave, that is the heart, or really the mind. Now Rashi says this is referring to God, that it is, that is, the perspective is not from the, um, from the learner, but from the educator, from the authority figure. That it is, it's better that God shows anger 
rather than showing uh, easiness that's undeserved, since discipline is, in fact, effective. Rashi refers to Adoniah, who grew, uh, who grew up badly, because his father, King David, is described in the Book of Kings as never having disciplined him. However, within the context of the previous verses, I think the focus really is not on the instructor, but on the person who goes to the mourner's house, that is, the learner, and the sense is that this negative experience, the sad faces, the sorrow, the agitation, they will cause a person to think seriously on life. Finally, continuing in this mode, Lev Chachamim Bevet Evel, Lev Kasilim Bevet Simcha, the heart, or really the mind of the wise person, is in a mourner, the mourner's house, but the mind of the fool is in the party house. Now, if Beit Simcha is the same as Beit Mishteh, that we had above, then this certainly seems to be more of a frat party than a bat mitzvah, uh, since either uh, Beit Simcha makes one foolish, or foolish people spend a lot of time building their philosophies based on the experiences that they see there. And while I've seen some pretty foolish uh, uh, weddings and other kind of uh, simchot of mitzvah, uh, generally speaking, they're not all that bad, and what goes on there is not foolishness. Nonetheless, I think that what Kohelet is saying is that wise thoughts and sage philosophies are developed by by observing people in their time of, of, of sorrow in a shiva home. Um, this is not about depression and pessimism, as some think, but it's about being sober. It's about sobriety and realism. Verse 5 begins a new section about education and discipline. Although, if you remember, Rashi said uh, that the, the focus had already switched to the educator in verse 3. Nonetheless, this verse cer- certainly starts the focus um, of the educator. Tov li it is better to listen to the rebuke of the wise man than to hear the song of fools. Um, as the opposite of rebuke, song doesn't literally mean singing, uh, but it's obviously being used idiomatically, which are words of encouragement that are unjustified. It's... Uh, uh, there's a, a similar use in, in English with the word song, like I sold it to him with a with a dance and a song, which means words that really don't have any meaning, but they sound real good and they make the listener feel good. Um, I, as an educator, I would say this is like uh, what the, I would make a modern comparison uh, with telling a student who just failed the math test. Uh, because he played Xbox 360 all night, that it was uh, okay that he failed the test because it was good for his emotional development to be playing so much computer time and everything will be okay, when in fact nothing is okay and the kid has serious uh, uh, priority issues that really need to be uh, dealt with. Because the laughter, and again, this is an idiom for non-serious words, the laughter of the fools is like the sound of thistles underneath the pot. This too, meaning just like the thistles burn away without producing enough heat to cook the pot, so too the laughter of fools is equally insubstantial. It's havel, it's unsubstantial, it's helpful, it's a lie essentially. And another modern example, a person goes to a doctor and wants to hear everything is okay, and they may even present things to their doctor in such a way as to hide the problem so they can hear a diagnosis because it makes them feel better. But essentially what you have here is self-delusion. It, the, that good feeling dissipates like Hevel once the truth catches up in the end, and it's usually worse because of the delay and the dishonesty. Um, the next verse opens up with the word key because, but it seems to have no preceding wisdom which it's trying to explain that is key tries to explain a wisdom that was just said and here there's no previous wisdom the previous pasuk also had a key which explains uh, the previous wisdom but the previous wisdom is not related to this to this coming verse 
Um, so some Dead Sea Scroll scholars uh, suggest that there may have been a missing wisdom for which this key verse, that is Kuf Yud, the, the, the cause verse, is trying to prove, and then one can use the proof to reconstruct the wisdom. But the, you know, the Qumran evidence is really not based on actual text. Uh, it's not a very solid argument, and therefore I think it's best to stick with our traditional text whenever possible. Um, so let's read the Pasuk and see if we can get a beat on it. Ki ha'oshek yeholel chacham v'abeid eleiv matana. Because the oppression makes a fool of the sage, and a present destroys the leiv, one's intelligence. Some commentators think that the word matana is an adjective for the word heart, resulting in the following read, that oppression from the first part of the line not only makes a fool of the wise, as stated in the first part of the line, but it also destroys a balanced heart from the word matun. But I think matana is the subject uh, here, which is destroying the lave, the mind, and the reason why it's dangling at the end of the line is for poetic reasons. But either way, the question is, what does oppression and presence have to do with anything that we've been talking about before? Um, rather than inserting a missing uh, wisdom, I think that Kohelet may be comparing undeserved or even purchased praise, like uh, like somebody who purchases a, a mark uh, for a test, um, and, and compares that to oshek, meaning which usually means to oppress or to extort money, but it also means to wrong someone. So I think what 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 Kohelet is doing is this is a metaphor that is the pleasant but undeserved words to a student or to a sinner are like the false payments and undeserved gifts that do nothing but misguide a person as to what his true actions were and what the consequences of, of those actions will be. Verse 8 seems to begin a new idea. Tov acharit davar mereshito, tov erech ruach migivah ruach. The end of matters is better than its beginning, and better a patient spirit than a haughty spirit. If we want to connect these two perfectly straightforward observations, I would propose the following, that when one starts a project, there's a potential for a certain amount of misplaced confidence. Like King Ahav uh, said when he rebuked King Ben-Hadad of, of Syria, uh, Ben-Hadad had haughtily boasted of his upcoming success against Ahav in war. So Ahav said to him, Dabiru al-yitalel choger kimfateach. They say, quote, let not a person boast when he's putting on his war belt like the one who is unbuckling it, which means don't count your chickens before they hatch and don't pretend you're a winner of the war until the war is actually over. Um, in the computer business, there's a good old joke about project management, which goes like this. The first 90% of a project takes 90% of the time, and the last 10% of a project takes the other 90% of the time. So it's good to have erech ruach, or patience, in order to see a successful acharit davar in the end of a project. I think the first half of the line um, is a quote, essentially, about how things at the end are better than the beginning. And, and whatever its original context was, Kohelet seems to be quoting it and then adding on. And the way that I'm telling you that you have to get there is by having patience and, and, and a control over your mood and your state of mind. Don't stir up your spirit to anger or agitation. Because agitation rests in the bosom of fools. And if this is a continuation of the previous verse, which it seems to be based on the connecting word ruach, the sense is that kaas will keep you from being an erech ruach, from a person with patience. And the message is, when things don't go as planned, if you flip out about things, you'll get nowhere. And if you count to ten and take a deep breath, 
then you have time to rethink the situation and um, have success. Verse 10 is a new wisdom. Al tomar mehaya shehayamim arishonim hayu tovim me'ele kilo sha'alta alzeh. Don't say, quote, what has happened? Why is that? Why is it that the earlier days are better than these? End quote. Because your questioning of this is not done from wisdom. Rashi puts this in a historical sense. Why are we, who are now in exile, uh, treated so badly when former generations were treated so good uh, for either the same sins or for even worse sins. But I, I think that it can be understood as a grass is always greener theory. That is, some people only notice bad things when they're here and now. And when they look back in the past, uh, those were always the good old days. Verse 11 begins a new two-verse wisdom, and its meaning will be subjective based on where you stand on the learning versus working uh, issue. There are three ways to read this based on how you translate the word im. Wisdom is better when it comes with property, meaning you should be a scholar and a businessman. Or, wisdom is as good as property, which means it can replace it. Uh, if you wish, or wisdom is, wisdom is better than property. And the word, the Hebrew word im can sometimes, albeit rarely, be comparative. That is something better than something else. Whichever way we translate this, the, the verse continues on, it is a benefit to those who see the sun. Meaning those living in the harsh, absurd world who need some shade, keep it sail ha chokhmah, but sail ha kasef, because of the, because the shade is the wisdom, and the shade is, or it's, there's no word and there, it says the shade is the wisdom, the shade is the silver or the money. So here we have a very difficult verse. We have no helping word for comparison, so we don't know if Chochmah is better than Kesef or not. Um, not only that, there's no verb here, so it's hard to say what the, this half of the verse means. I would say, in my humble opinion, the word im of the previous sentence means do both. That is, learn acquire Chochmah and have a Nachla and have a way to pay for it as well. Because then essentially you have double protection. You have wisdom and money providing the shadow. As it says in Pirkei Avot, Ein Kemach, Ein Torah. If you have no money, if you have no food, then you have no ability to learn uh, Torah. However, the end of this verse does put some does put wisdom, or at least a specific kind of wisdom, above money and perhaps above both of these things. V'yitron dat which means dat whatever that is, has an advantage since it can keep its owner alive. It can sustain its owner. Now, later in the book, we'll see a case where intelligence saves somebody from a besieged city. In this verse, dat does not seem to be regular chokhmah described in the last verse, the acquiring of wisdom, the learning of Torah. It seems to be a specific type of knowledge. I, I would say that it seems to be a know-how, and the word chokhmah could definitely be know-how. When describing uh, B'tzalel as a chokham, he was a chokham in knowing how to do all kinds of artisanship and sculpture. And when there was a woman who was a chokham who told a story to David, that was somebody who knew how to dress up and act. It, it, it refers to a practical knowledge that's different than chokhmah. Chokhmah by itself is something you get by sitting in an ivory tower. And, and, and this dad chokhmah has a practical application. A doctor, an engineer, that kind of thing. And this type of chokhmah is different than nachalah as well. It's better than both of them. Both Chokhmah and Nachalah. It's better than Chokhmah because there's practical side to it. And it's better than Nachalah because 
Nachala is essentially the kind of money that you inherited. It's the portion of land that you inherited from your father. This is the knowledge to make a living, which means you have the ability to sustain yourself in new ways, even if you don't get that piece of property. Verses 13 and 14, uh, moving on to the next session, describe a new wisdom that seems to, up, to update something Kohelet said in chapter 1. Over there he said, It was an absurdity. He said, that which is crooked can't be fixed, and what's not there can't be counted. Uh, he was describing essentially the absurdity of trying to make sense out of the world when things just don't add up, so let it be. But here the absurdities in life are not random, but they are actually described now by Kohelet as the result of God's decisions. Do you see that's the same words that we had before, but without God. Look at the acts of God, because who can fix that which he has made crooked? Therefore, how does one deal with the fact that the absurdities are in fact under God's control, that he either allows them or makes them himself? Um, now, whether or not one believes, as Kohelet does, that God will eventually get around to straightening things out, so whenever he gets around to desire it, we still have a problem of uh, the fact that God, in the here and now, in, in, in what, what we have before us, is the fact that things are set askew and unjust because God allows them or actually enables them to take place. So he says, "Biyom tova v'tov of yom ra'a re'ei." On a good day, appreciate it. That is, appreciate the good days when they're there, because they're not always there. On bad days, give heed, because God does both of these things in a way that man will not know anything about what will happen after him. Uh, we had something a little similar to this idea uh, about how God does things in order to make sure that man fears him, so therefore he doesn't give him the big picture. And this seems to return, return to the idea that God, even, God does justice in his own good time. And in fact, the span of a human life is not long enough always to see the final results. And therefore, Kohelet is giving us practical advice. Um, you know, on good days, so great. On bad days, try to figure out why God is doing the things that he's doing. Now, Rashi explains the last part differently than I did. Um, he says that, what he says is, he says that both are acts of God, that is the good and the bad, and therefore, um, one can find no criticism with God when the bad comes, because then you'd have to criticize the good as well, which is a little bit like Eov said to his wife, how can we take the good and not accept the bad? After pondering things in this world that seem twisted, so Kahalat, I think, now moves on to ponder the ultimate injustice. I have seen these things in my transitory life as follows. There are times that the righteous person is destroyed in his righteousness, and a wicked person endures or lives a long life with his wickedness. The sense of the word in Bitsidko and may mean in spite of his righteousness, he he suffers, and birato means in spite of his weaknesses, he endures. But it could also mean with, that is using, meaning the righteous acts cause the righteous person to die. And wicked acts actually cause the person to have a good long life. Now, Kohelet focuses in the following verses, now that he's presented the problem, the absurdity, so he now focuses less on 
on the answer of why that happens than the practical side of how to deal with the fact that that injustice does in fact exist. Now some say that this verse and the next are based on the Greek golden mean philosophy, meaning you know, don't be too much of this or too much of that. Be neither too righteous nor too wicked. Don't be too wise nor too foolish. Otherwise, lama tishomem. Um, otherwise you will be or why should you be confounded? Um, but that's not a very orthodox idea that one should uh, not do too much righteous things and in fact do a little bit of uh, wicked things that you come out as a 50-50 type of person. So there are ways to bring it back to a more orthodox approach. Rashi says, don't be more righteous than is called for, which means in modern times we would say, don't be more holy than God. Um, Rashi gives an example of King Saul's misplaced mercy in his war against Amalek. And what he says about don't be smart, too smart is coming up with uh, all kinds of halachic decisions of uh, decisions about religious practice that are based on intellectual games uh, rather than a realistic and uh, you know realistic understanding of of of, uh, of Jewish law. I once read uh, what's called a Shaila and Tshuva, a Jewish uh, uh, decision, halachic decision that rule that one can't give his own rabbi, Mishloch Manot, food gifts on Purim. Why? So this this book argued, this uh, rabbi argued, that since it says you must give it to your friend, and legally your primary rabbi can't be your friend, therefore you can't give it to your rabbi. So besides misunderstanding the word reya and how reya is used in the Bible, which does not always mean friend, but this is an example of, I think, um, uh, of, of people with nothing better to do than to kind of, play around with their brains for the sake of playing around and come up with Jewish law, especially when it's unnecessary strictness. It's it's a kind of pill-pull which it has a negative thing, and I think that's what Rashi is referring to. But I have digressed quite a bit, so let me get back. Now, there there are other ways to resolve the unorthodoxy of this verse. It could mean, don't consider yourself to be so righteous and so smart. Um, however, I think that Kohelet actually is doing something else here. I think, once again, as we've seen before, Kohelet is quoting... Uh, offense-sitting, don't-get-involved philosophy for staying out of trouble. That is, now that we've seen that the righteous suffer for their righteousness, they go out as martyrs, and the wicked wind up prospering. So some say, quote, don't be such a tzaddik, and don't make yourself so smart, end quote, because you get yourself in trouble. But I, Kohelet, focus instead on the following verse. So essentially he's rejecting that kind of take-the-medium-road approach. Uh, what the right approach he says is al tir don't make yourself so wicked and don't be such a fool for why should you die when it's not your time Kohelet is rejecting the golden mean he's saying one if one should focus on if one should focus on moderation it should be the moderation of one's tendencies for foolish and wicked behavior I like also this reference to God adjusting the time of death because, first of all, it describes the tension between predetermination and control over one's fate, as if we start off by God with some predefined lifespan, but then we can alter it based on positive behavior or negative behavior. Tov 
It is better to hold on to this without also abandoning the other, that is, hold on to both things, because one who fears God will exit with both of them. This is a difficult verse. First, it's hard to say what Yetzeh Kulam is referring to, or, or even exactly what it means. Also, what is the Zeh you should grab onto without dropping the other Zeh? So if you like the golden mean theory, so it means hold on to goodness and wickedness at the same time. But as I said, that's very orthodox. Now, to be honest with you, I don't have a problem with Kohelet pondering unorthodox thoughts. He does so in this book, even though by the end of the book he'll reverse a lot of them. However, I mean, that is, he's a human. Sometimes a human has un- unorthodox thoughts, and those appear in the book. As I stated in the introduction, this book is not about conclusions. It's about the process, and in the process, sometimes you have unorthodox thoughts. However, since he himself in this verse remen- mentions the fear of God, which is the, the most orthodox position that one could take, so why would that that kind of person, the one who's Yirei Elohim, want to hold on to his wickedness. It just doesn't, it doesn't fit. You can't put an unorthodox thought together into an orthodox uh, uh, character. So it could be that Zeh and Zeh mean not righteousness and wickedness from the first verse and the second verse. It could be righteousness and Chochman, wisdom, which are both mentioned in that first verse, two verses ago. Uh, this means do the do the right thing, do the righteous thing, but don't stop thinking and philosophizing. Um, again, there's a there, he, he mentions there's danger to thinking and philosophizing. If you spend too much time thinking and philosophizing, you drive yourself crazy. But on the other hand, don't stop doing it anyway, even though you can't solve all your problems. And this fits very nicely into the next verse. Wisdom strengthens the sage more than ten rulers that were in the city. Now, very difficult passage, only because why? You know, what is this thing about the ten? Princes, the ten rulers, where do they come out of? And what city is he referring to? It's Ba'ir, it doesn't mean in a city. Ba'ir with a kamatz under the bet means in the city. So Rashi says this is a historical reference to ten unwise Judean kings in Jerusalem and how they suffered in ways that, that people like Yoshiahu, Josiah, who used their wisdom, did not suffer. Um, there are other possibilities, but I, I think that the, the, the bottom line is saying that wisdom is better than riches and here lots of power, with ten princes being a general number for lots and lots of power. Finally, Kohelet um, talks uh, about not how to act in the face of injustice, but why it happens. It is up to this point, it's really been a practical guide to how to deal with that injustice. And he says, if you want to moderate, moderate your negative uh, behavior. Or maybe he says, don't pretend that you're so righteous and not be aware of what's really going on. Why? Ki adam sadik ba'aretz, ki adam ein sadik ba'aretz. I'm sorry, that ein is very important here. Ki adam ein sadik ba'aretz, asher Because there is not one single righteous man who does only good and does not sin. That is, you're defining righteousness wrong. Righteousness doesn't mean someone who never ever sins. Everybody sins because we're only human. Everybody has flaws. So don't be surprised when sometimes it catches up with us. Um, I'll leave it at that, this little section, and I'll just say, as I've said a, a number of times before in this book, there are a lot of ways to understand um, the book in general and the passages uh, in particular in this critical section about theodicy and, and, and righteousness versus wickedness and what happens to both. And I would strongly suggest uh, you know, further study uh, because uh, there are just so many possibilities, and there are many, many possibilities that are worth worth exploring. Verse 21 is a new idea, but I think it's related to the previous pondering about good and evil, as I'll try to demonstrate. Gam <speaking in Hebrew> 
Mikalecha. Moreover, don't pay attention, which means don't give any thought to all the things that people say, meaning Lashon Har about you, so that you don't even hear your servant curse you, because there's no one more likely to curse a manager from time to time than one's employees. Now, why should you not listen to any of these things, not even what a servant says badly about you? Because you know in your heart that there were many times that you cursed others. And this ties to the idea of not being so righteous. That is that possible explanation, which is don't, or in this case, self-righteous. Oh, how could that person be talking about me? Well, you probably said some pretty nasty things yourself. So everyone sins. Everybody says a little bit of Lashonara, or sometimes a lot. Uh, everyone says ill-conceived nasty things that they didn't even necessarily mean that slipped out of their mouth. So do unto others and forgive others, so to speak, just like you would want them to forgive you for the same things that you've done. Uh, one should simply understand when one looks at a sinner, especially when they're sinning against you, one should try to understand where they're coming from. And now, not only does Kohelet move on to a new idea, but he stops speaking in the second person and returns to the first person ponderings and philosophizing. What he is doing here is pondering all of the wisdoms that he put out there in his life, including the essential, chap- the essential ideas of this chapter as well. Kolzo, all of this, Kolzo nisiti bachokhmah, all this I tested out with wisdom. I said I will become wiser. That is, I tried all these things out to make myself wiser and wiser. But it is far from me. What has happened, meaning life's experiences, is far away and deep, so deep, who can find it? Who, meaning, who can understand everything that's, that's going on and everything that has been in this world? This returns us to the original idea that it's not not so much about the absurdities of the world that are so vexing to Kohelet, but the compulsion, the God-given compulsion that man must understand everything, which is absurd because man knows that he can't understand something. So he tries to know everything knowing that he can't know everything, which is a tongue twister as well as an absurdity. So I turned me in my mind, which has like a sense of forcing one to to uh, to go somewhere, and maybe it's like a breathless, circular, hectic pursuit of to comprehend and to explore and to investigate wisdoms and plans. The word cheshbon here doesn't mean accounting like in modern Hebrew. It means plans and plots or trying to figure out how things will turn out. It generally has a negative sense. Getting back to the verse, and either then I changed to, or then I also went to comprehend wickedness born of folly and foolish behavior and inanities. Holut may also be referring to the drunken revelry. Now, Kohelet is revisiting what he said at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. He's explaining the reason why he went for searching in all these unlikely places is because when he tried to just use standard chokhmah, standard wisdom, that was insufficient to solve all of the world's absurdities. And now Koala touches on something else, something new, that he came across in his pursuit of understanding. I have found myself, I have myself found something more bitter than death. 
a woman who sets traps and whose heart lays snares and whose hands are prisons. One who is good before God will escape from her, but the sinner will be trapped by her. Now, if one takes a cynical approach to Kohelet, uh, he is referring to all women. That is, I have found that all women are like this. Um, but that is unlikely uh, for a number of reasons. First and foremost, because later in the book, Kohelet himself will tell us to enjoy life with a woman who is our one true love. So why would you say here that there's nobody worth uh, being with, that all women are are uh, are uh, wicked seducers? Um, and I'm sorry that the book is directed to man and suggests a man uh, take time with, with uh, the, his one true life, uh, his wife. But of course it applies to women as well. All you have to do is reverse it. Instead, what I did was, instead of saying that all women are like this, I specifically translated it that that the marmi mabat, the thing which is a bit more bitter than death, is a woman who behaves this way. Not just any woman, but a woman who by nature lays traps and snares. She is more bitter than death. Now, if we look in the first chapters of the book of Proverbs, there it spoke about the seductions and the traps of a wicked, a wicked woman called an ishazona. Um, and, and that wasn't really a prostitute there. It was talking about someone else's wife. And it was talking about avoiding the crime of adultery. And that fits well here too, since Kohelet says that fear of God will keep you from it. So it's likely that there's a sin involved, i.e. adultery. However, I would like to return to something that I've mentioned before. Always be careful that the text in front of you not only has the literal meaning, but a metaphoric translation as well. In Proverbs... The wicked woman in Proverbs is not only just somebody else's wife. She is a metaphor for the rejection of wisdom. She is a, an, a personification of anti-chokhmah. How do we know this? Because in chapter 1 of Proverbs, the first thing that we, is discussed is a woman called chokhmah who is specifically described as a personification of listening to God and of being wise. So if the wicked woman over there in Mishle, is in Proverbs, is not only a literal wicked woman, but also a personification of anti-wisdom, so here too, this woman may be a metaphor for anti-wisdom, a metaphor for abandoning wisdom and going after uh, a, a holy loot of all kinds of wanton revelry and, and, and poor actions, all in a search for answers, um, that this is the wrong type of woman to be searching for in a metaphoric sense. Behold, this is what I found, said Kohelet. Everyone is looking for cheshbon, for plans, plots, to understand how everything will work out. Now, um, on a side note, um, there, are word, there are reasons given by uh, commentaries uh, why it says Amara Kohelet in the feminine, that Kohelet says, she said, uh, of course, had it said Amar HaKohelet, that would have been a much more uh, easy read. Uh, but either way, if you're curious about why it's used in the uh, feminine sense here, so you can look up the various commentators. The general sense is the same. Asher od nafshi v'lo matzati, adam echad me'elef matzati v'isha b'chol eile lo matzati. The things which I tried to investigate, od b'kshan nafshi, but I could not discover... One in a thousand men I discovered, and from all of these, not a single woman did I find, did I discover. This is a very hard, hard verse, not, a, not because it seems misogynistic, 
But what kind of woman is he searching for? And what kind of man is he searching for? What is the goal of him searching for them? What does it have to do with his understanding plans? The whole thing, it doesn't really fit all that well with the previous verse. So Rashi explains that if one wants to know how everything works out, achat la'achat works out. Not that in the previous verse that everybody looks for it, but achat la'achat is how everything in the world works out. So Kabbalah says you could find it in the Torah. However, when he went looking for teachers, and here Rashi again focuses on the the teacher and the instructor, when he went, when Kohelik was looking for a teacher to teach the truth, he found only one out of a thousand men who could qualify, and no woman would qualify because he says they are too easygoing, which means that they're not harsh enough with their students when their students make mistakes. Remember, that was his commentary up above, that you have to be tough in order to, to you have to rebuke somebody in order to get some results, and he feels that women are too pleasant and soft to do such things. Alternatively, we could take a historical approach because the number 1,000 is indicative. Shlomo's wives and concubines numbered exactly 1,000. And in his pursuit of them, historically, all of their countries and all of their cultures and all of the wisdoms that they probably took from their their hometowns, their home countries, they clearly did not bring uh, Solomon the wisdom that he was hoping for, and, and indeed the opposite. Levad matzati asher adam yashar. In addition to this I found, I discovered that God makes every man straight, meaning with the ability to do good. But they keep looking for many plots and plans. Apparently, that absurd pursuit taken to the extreme, so that's described as bikshu cheshbonot, leads the upright man away from the straight and upright path that God had created him on in the first place. This is just one way to understand the text, of course, and it's a difficult text, so hopefully you'll pursue others as well.